So today we are here to talk about theatre design and I have with me a very distinguished group of people who can talk about it till the cows come home <laughs> but we haven't actually got till then so we're going to try to compress uh, a lot of very inf interesting information into a very short space of time. So reading from the far right, John Driscoll, John Borsa, Ray Smith, Bill Dudley. And rather than tell you anything about them, I'm going to ask them to tell you something about themselves. Um, I'm going to get each one of them just to give us a very brief snapshot of how they came to be involved in theatre design. Because what I think will emerge, I hope, is that theatre design today is remarkably diverse there are a remarkable range of different practices that now uh, you can see um, in the theatre and a very wide range of different, uh, what shall I call them, toolkits, technologies and indeed um, craft and skill that is uh, manifest here in the people that you see before you. So, John, I'm afraid I'm going to go My first. From, okay. <laughs> from right to left. So start with you and tell us where you came okay. from. Okay. Um, very briefly, um, I studied theatre design at Croydon College of Arts. That was my first, you know, entering into the theatre world. Then I was very lucky. I used to do lots of freelance lighting designs. Lighting was my thing. I came and worked at the National mm -hmm. for quite a while. Um, but there was a problem. I was a bit of a hybrid. When I, was a, when I was a child, I used to build theatres and all that kind of stuff, which is quite common for us designers. Except my theatres used to show films on Super 8 as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I had this hankering to go and train as a cinematographer. I always saw light as... I didn't really see... I didn't draw a line between theatre lighting and film lighting. So after about five years at the NT, I think it was, I plucked up the guts to, ask to, go to, the, to apply to go to the National Film School and fortunately, the head of cinematography at that time took a punt on me, and I did the MA there about 2000. Coming out the other side of that, I stopped, you know, I stopped my guns, I'm going to do films, I'm going to do short films, all that kind of stuff. But a lot of people I knew at the NT and various directors kept saying, at the same time as this new thing was evolving, video design, could you just shoot us a little film for inclusion in this theatre design? So I did a bit of that. And eventually I started to realise, well, maybe this is a bit of a niche, and I do quite like the theatre industry. And so I combined the two, and um, that's where I am today. You know, it's kind of a, I do a hybrid. So I, I work in um, moving imagery in, in stage design. So. so when people ask you what you do, what do you say? I have a great, I get in a great confusion. It's very hard to, <laughs> yeah. you, you can't really apply for a loan very easily or anything like that. It, it's basically... Uh, yeah. I will just say we run a post-production company that works for live, you know, in the entertainment industry. So that will do the bank manager, it. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, John, other John. Other John. I come from a more of a performance point of view. Um, I was in a school play, and there was a casting director in there <coughs> from the RSC, and she asked me to come and audition for them, and, and I ended up on stage randomly, not wanting to be an actor, but. Being an actor, it playing Lucius in um, Julius Caesar that Stephen Pinlock directed. And it was designed by a guy called Tobias Hoheisel, who's an amazing designer and a friend and uh, now, and who cut all my hair off 
and uh, in, during previews then decided to put it all back on again <laughs> with my own hair in my own wig, which was awful. Um, so, you know, there was me kind of crying 16-year-old. Um, my hair, my hair. And, um, and then um, and I got the theatre bug from that. I'd been a musician up until that point. And then I spent the next year, few years trying to work out how to be a theatre designer. So I trained as an artist and I did a music degree. And then I went to build scenery in the West End with, for a company called Victor Mara's, who at the time were like the biggest, oldest scenery company builders in, the, in Lambeth. And, um, and I met some amazing designers, including Bill, that he probably doesn't remember. And, um, <laughs> and well, uh, they, they had so much drink there, they were all like that all the time, all losing fingers, you know. Kind of. Yeah, and, and, I, and everyone told me to go to this place called Motley. So um, <laughs> having trained in various different things, I eventually ended up at Motley and kind of discovered <laughs> theatre design for myself. Um, and that's kind of how I ended up starting. Right, and you might, it might be worth for those people who don't know, just making clear that Motley is an independent theatre design yeah. course rather than it's not a college, it's not part of a university, it's... Yeah, I mean, Motley was, uh, yeah. sadly. I mean, what's Sorry, the Motley space, was, I think, yes. but um, <coughs> it was set up quite... It was set up by um, the th three women, uh, one of whom was a woman called Percy Harris, who became the kind of main teacher. And it's a, it was a kind of effectively a postgraduate course mm. that really importantly accepted people from any discipline. So I hadn't done a theatre design course or anything. I'd done a music degree and, an, and a bit of an art degree and given up on that. Um, and it, it was full of, you know, I had a dancer in my head, an engineer, a biochemist, you know, all sorts of interesting people, all kind of in this weird think tank. Yeah. No one sleeping for a year, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, Ray. Um, oh, well, I started off... I went to art school, uh, to Central St Martin's School of Art. I then... Um, and I did you go thinking theatre design or did you go to do something I went, else? I went thinking fine art right? and then I ended up in <coughs> taste design and then I ended up in fine art mainly because I was totally disappointed that what you had to do as a theatre designer was make wooden floors <laughs> 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 and I was like oh <laughs> so I just ended up, ended up in, um, in etching, I, from, we got taught etching by Norman Aykroyd and, and uh, colour photography printing in those days before digital and um, sculpture. I just ended up in every department in the art school um, and doing the theatre design at the same time. <laughs> and, but I did manage to do the theatre design degree and then I went to Scotland and worked at the Glasgow Citizens Theatre as design assistant oh. for um, Stuart Lang, Kenny Miller, Philip Prowse, mm. Giles Havergill and Robert David Macdonald when they ran it. And it was brilliant because it was in the 80s, right, ages ago, but um, it was basically a very good theatre to start off as designer because it had very high visual standards. They had a great aesthetic, great, I call it a homosexual aesthetic, which is like beauty was part of the concept, you know. And so, uh, and no money, of course, and uh, they, but that, that was great because I learned all about that, basically. And then from then I went on and worked in an arts collective in former Yugoslavia before the war called Neue Slovenische Kunst and I worked in their theatre which was called Red Pilot and I also worked in their uh, Nova Collectivism which was their graphics design department 
and uh, for um, the painters as well, because as, as an arts collective, there are lots of little um, nooks and crannies that you can go and work for, for one basic political concept. But I won't tell you about that, because that's a long story. Um, anyway, I found myself back in London, and I started working for Theatre to Complicity. <coughs> so I found myself as a kind of very hands-on designer, and also a designer that was based on um, performing kind of thing, because Theatre Complicity at that time, we did the visit, and then the Street of Crocodiles was, was uh, made things up as they went along. That was one of the things. <laughs> so for, since then, the, so that's kind of defined <coughs> me as designer to be involved in those kind of devised shows. I mean, as well as um, stuff that isn't devised, but that's what I like to be, basically. Mixed media and devised. Mm. Great, thank you. Um, there quite a few things have already come out of this to do with not just different ways of getting into doing this job, but also different ways of doing it when you're doing it. And one of the things that we might come back to, I think, is this issue about the performer and how the designer and performers work together. It's particularly interesting in relation to what John told us about, um, about um, his very early experience <laughs> with the hair. Um, <laughs> But, <coughs> Bill, yeah, yeah. give us your uh, potted history. I was, um, I, I first had an idea to be a stage designer um, in about 1958 or 59. Uh, I was astonished by the work of Sean Kenny, who was the designer, of Joan, one of Joan Littlewood's designers at Stratford East, but also designed the original production of Oliver. And subsequently, other shows in that format I, found, I thought he was a work of genius because um, I watched the show. For that, that time, you could get into the gods for about three and sixpence, you know, and, and watch it. And I couldn't understand how it was changing the world. It was just uh, um, like magic, like the spot the lady kind of thing. And I, I saw the ground plans for it many years later, and I thought, God, that was so simple. But it worked. And, um, but I thought I'd better go to art school. And I went to St. Martin's as well, which, as you know, is not very far from here. Um, but it was a terrible time to be a figurative painter. Uh, this would be um, 65. And uh, I, I got fed up with it, really, because everybody was trying to paint like Mark Rothko and all those, Barnett Newman and all, all that lot. And I, that's not me. And um, I, I, I ran away from art school. I used to check in so I didn't lose the grant. And then zip up to... Uh, this was the London Theatre about that time. There was only three theatres in it. Uh, one in Ealing and one in Camden. The and small... One, the small yeah, fringe theatres, yeah. And the one I, I, I is near where I grew up, but at, um, near the Union Chapel. Um, and, but it had people like Sir Mike, Michael Gambon there and, and Tom Courtney passing through. And we, we were reviewed uh, like a professional theatre. Uh, the Times and, and The Guardian all came on our first night. So it was unpaid, but it was thrilling. And I thought, this is so much better than uh, at art school. Uh, on the first day, everybody got some money and they'd all build a little monk's cell with a padlock on it and retreat in and with go away on the outside. I thought, <laughs> you know, basically the theatre had better parties, really. I mean, <laughs> but, still true. But I, I, I did, I, I started working there and um, I and did a postgraduate at the Slade School of Art when they had um, um, a postgraduate in stage design. And it, it, it opened up so much for me because uh, theatre design, uh, I think we'd all agree, uh, has so many different aspects of it, from um, technology, metal work, costume making, fabrics. 
if you're interested in lots of different things, it's great. It's like a superb hobby, and they pay you to do it. Sometimes. Well, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so um, one of the things, though, uh, Bill, that you said to me earlier, which I think is just worth touching on very mm. lightly, is Sean Kenny, who was a, who was yeah. a great name in theatre in the uh, mid-20th century. Mm. Uh, and when you mentioned him to me, you kind of implied that I probably wouldn't remember, well, I'm very old, so I do, but mm. perhaps a lot of people won't necessarily. And, and, it, and it led to a discussion that we had about mm. the status of theatre designers mm. in the kind of broader um, landscape of uh, artists and how mm. actually one of the things about theatre design is that um, people in the theatre know who mm. theatre designers are, but probably outside the theatre not so much. Mm. And yet, the work of designers is absolutely critical to whether a piece of theatre works or doesn't work. So, just very quickly, if I went along and said to you each, you've only got a yes or no answer to this, so you've got to plump it, okay. When, if somebody asked you, are you an artist, what would you say? Yes. John? Yes. 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 Yeah, well, there we are. I think that that actually is what we should acknowledge about theatre design, that it is an art form. Um, but coming back to what Bill just said, it is highly collaborative, is it not? Mm -hmm. So, again, just quickly, can we talk a little bit about what a design team now in theatre is likely to comprise? Who, who is part of that, that work? Because my guess is that it's probably more people than it used to be, mm. and that the number of influences on mm. what eventually appears <coughs> on stage is actually quite diverse. Mm. So, Ray? Design team, blimey, it's going to be big. The, the creative team can be quite big. So basically, obviously, there's lighting designer, there's sound, there's video designer, there's those that operate all of that. There's puppet puppetry director, there's puppetry designer, there's um, designer, there's costume designer, there's um, associate designers on, on those, because if the show's quite big, you need a lot of um, help. Director? Yeah, but they're not design. <laughs> no, I, I, fair point. I'm just talking about the people who actually would think of themselves as part of the design team. Yeah. Mm. Possibly. So a, already a, that's a lot. And an illusionist, maybe. Oh, yeah. Illusionist. Oh, yeah. Mm. illusionist. So yes. ma magic. Yeah. yeah. It's all magic. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. So special effects. Yeah. Yeah. Armourer. Yeah. But then and also, the, also the production armor, manager yeah. is often yeah. very cre part yeah. of the creative process. And, yeah. yes. and video and and uh, and three uh, D design, digital design now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's mm. at that's the work at its most um, expansive. So, for example, I know John, Far John, you're working on a big West End show at the moment. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And which which uh, has probably got all of those things and yeah it's got and it's got a healthy some. team it's a, yeah. it's a biggish team yeah but so when you've got that many people yeah. all contributing to mm. what the audience sees um who is the presiding genius 
who makes the decisions? Who decides what is going to be in and what's not going to be in? Well, I think the director has power of attorney still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> over everything. And is the person, from my experience, but it has become much more collaborative in the sense that everyone has a voice. Yeah. And, and so, so, Bill, compare that with the very earliest days in your career. Hmm. Firstly, actually, let's just say, you can't have all of those people if you're doing a show at the King's Head, can you? So <laughs> you might have some of those elements, but you're Ooh. not going to have all of those people. But uh, for you, <coughs> having been in, in this business for so long, how different is it today in terms of mm. the numbers of collaborators you probably work with compared with mm. when you started? Well, when I started, it was whoever showed up, really. <laughs> <laughs> you know, say, do you know which end of the hammer from another? You know, it was, um, it was very ad hoc because uh, we, no, none of us could have known what an explosion of theatre would have happened, was going to happen, yep. I should say. And I found it somewhat similar at the Royal Court, moving to there uh, in the early days. Um, anybody who, who could do any bit of carpentry, welding, anything like that, a um, few drinks, and they do it. <laughs> but they had somebody, hoc, yes. yeah, okay. Mm. But 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 you, but so you might have been doing that stuff, but you were also deciding how you wanted it to look. So the welding mm. had to produce something that looked like you had in your yeah, head. Yeah, I think we'd all agree. You have to think a lot on your feet. If you're in, a, um, I remember going to do a, um, a show at the Hamburg State Opera a few years after the Beatles left Hamburg, I think, and um, uh, and I. I uh, I went, <laughs> the taxi dropped me at the wrong end of the workshop. It was an old Zeppelin factory, it's 900 foot long. And going in, uh, I realised the offices were down the far end. And walking along, I, I, there were all these men working these benches. And uh, I was, they all stopped because they all knew I was, who I was because I was carrying the model box. And they all put down their tools, stood to attention saluted British style and whistled <laughs> Colonel Bogey and it was the longest 900 feet. <laughs> <laughs> Apropos of nothing really but it's, um, it's, it, it, it's, it, it's the notion of um, uh, you, you find very strange situations you find yourself in like in a, in a dry dock that's filling up with water and you've got to decide oh, yeah. when to get out. <laughs> yeah. it's, um, it, it, I think that you're caught out many times but whether it's a costume design or a prop or, or a, um, a fire officer says that's illegal and you're instantly aren't you you're, you're exposed and it's you you have to make that decision yeah that's the hairy part yeah so so there's somebody and it's usually one of you who's holding the whole kind of uh, visual reality mm. of, of any given mm. show in your in your head yeah, and it become, it can become quite a dramaturgical voice, I think, probably as a designer sometimes. When you're devising or creating work that's not necessarily written down already. So, you know, say in the... I mean, this is a slightly different case in terms of it's a bigger theatrical idea, but like when, when I was designing the Paralympics last year, the opening ceremony... The, Haven't come to that, yeah. The, um, we were making it up, you know, from the beginning, and it was a it's a very mm. visual show. It's like kind of baroque theatre in that respect. So we were, and it's and, it, and the idea, the way of working was no different to working with, say, Filter or, you know, or Sound and Fury. You know, in the devisory process, is that we were, we had an idea, but we didn't really know what, how that idea was going to progress, and we had to take it through story-wise as an as a visual thing. 
So if, if it was a continual conversation that was very much kind of design-led. Yeah. That's, that's, of course, a good example of a, of a, of a kind of theatre-related design which we mm. haven't actually explicitly mm. talked about, though Bill alluded to it, which is making theatre in places which are not theatres. Mm. And all of you mm. uh, have done that. Uh, well, mm. actually, I, I don't know about you, John. You pr I'm sure you will have done. But I think I have, mm. yes. Yes. <laughs> you, you weren't sure? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, but there is, there, there is increasingly um, uh, a requirement for designers to be able to work mm. in situations where actually mm. you've not got a kind of given frame. You've got to make that happen mm. and, and decide what's going to go in that space mm -hmm. and how the performers are going to be able to yeah. negotiate the space with the design. I mean, Ray, in relation, for example, to the sort of, sort of work that you've done, I mean, can you think of an example of a time when you've had to improvise in a space which wasn't intended to do what you were asking it to do? Yeah, um, uh, I was doing a ballet in Kotor in on the Dubrovnik coast um, and it was with uh, a mixed company, the Randy Warshaw Dance Company, the Americans, and uh, form people from former Yugoslavia. And we were building the scenery and everything in a factory which was still filthy, dirty. And uh, I caught some horrible bug from the water there and chipped my tooth, which I still think about sometimes. And um, the Not from the water, I <laughs> No, just on the tap from right. drinking oh, okay. the water. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it, it was a rotten job, basically, because it was very dirty. But uh, And our crew, which were Montenegrin, were like really hard work. We had to bribe them to put the scenery up and everything like that. <laughs> so it was, it was a tough one. Yeah. That's what I remember. Okay. And so just on the Olympics thing, just very mm. briefly, John, how much did you know about the space and how the space would work mm. before you actually started to evolve the design elements that you were going to have to... We didn't know anything. Um, nothing? We knew nothing. We had, a, we had a building site that we knew, you know, we'd been in the building site, I, I could see the stadium, and I knew the technology that was going mm. in terms of the flying capability, yeah. but nothing had been tested, and we were very reliant, because we had a, short, a shorter time than Danny had going into the opening ceremony. So we had, a, we had to slightly think on our feet, but also use the, the technology to its foremost, you know, that hadn't really been used in the opening ceremony, so the flying capability was, we were very reliant on. Um, but weirdly, it was no, I mean, I, I think as designers, I think we think in terms of a performer on a stage. It's all about proportion and holding space. Um, and, with, you know, the, the cathedral builders did that brilliantly. Mm -hmm. um, and it was kind of using those lessons that you learn from, say, architecture or watching people within architecture. And holding that spa space, holding the stadium space so that a viewer, you know, and there were millions of them in the stadium, thousands of them in the stadium, um, watching that could have a, a, a more intimate experience with somebody who might be in a wheelchair at the centre, who might be 100 metres away from you, at least, maybe more, 200 metres away, but also then think, added complication, thinking televisually, so kind of thinking in terms of camera shot and, and putting things in front of lenses and putting, th you know, framing things in an interesting way. 
Um, so yeah. not much like putting on a pantomime, not really. Not really. Not, not no. well, possibly but in some but ways. But weirdly relying on the same techniques. I mean, we're still <laughs> yeah. relying on fly, flying. I was still relying <laughs> on Baroque technique that yeah. you know, I'd learned yeah. trapdoors. You know, the machinery was much bigger, yeah. mm. but it was still the same machinery. Mm. Yeah. So just to stay with this business about technology for, for a little while, John, um, John D, mm. you, you came through um, into design via a route that was about the kit that's mm. around mm. us, the, the lights, and wanted to go into cinemas, you've told us. But when you were when you were learning your craft initially, did yeah. you imagine? Did did you have any idea what might be ahead of you in terms of the sorts of technologies that were coming through, or have you? I mean, this is a question in a way for all of you. Have you literally had to learn almost year by year yeah. new mm. stuff as yeah, it's come yeah. along? Well, um, it's it, it's strangely that the the thing what I specialise in, which is projection design, it actually, it's got this long, long history and it's not new. So, and the very, so, you know, at the National in about 1997, we were doing a lot of um, uh, scenography with Parney projectors and printed mm. films, which was, it was spectacular. It was very effective, you know, it was really great. So I was kind of involved in that particular time in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the mechanisms, you know, the mechanics <coughs> of that. And I was also, in, you know, so it was fascinating because it was a photochemical version of what I do now. So we started, actually, Bill, it was a show that I worked for you on, the Cleo Camping. <laughs> it was the sort of first time, one of the first times, I mean, there'd been around video projectors started mm. to arrive. They mm. weren't very bright, but you could see the potential. Mm. So I could see the potential of it around the late 90s. Uh -huh. Then I went away for a bit, and then bang, it was there. It really mm. accelerated about 2002. Yeah. And then even I can't keep up with it now. I mean, mm. it is a revolution. Mm. I mean, it's, you know, it's yeah. fairly boring, you know, technology, but you, know, you have to be an enthusiast. If you, <laughs> I'm not particularly interested mm. in it, but what I can tell you is that it's sort of like, you know, somebody inventing a new way of writing or rendering. It's this whole thing is, is possible. And it, it did happen quickly, didn't it, mm. Bill? I mean, yeah. and, and now it does keep getting bright. The, the thing that made a difference is now it's, it can be very bright, mm. which was what we struggled with. I mean, I struggled with it in my designs for about five years, I'd say, trying to get that ratio between stage lighting and projections mm. and now now you can compete and you know and you do you do and mm. you can upset people for being too bright <laughs> yes. now so you know yeah. and, and yeah. inversely things like the sound the noise the pollution yeah. of noise has all come down so yeah. you know and in, but it did happen quickly Two, 2002 was the year i think yeah it was um there was some things that happened that we're all familiar with things like pixar's animations and about the time about 2002, uh, some more software came out, which was infinitely cheaper to to, to use, uh, to, to buy, and then to use it. It was much easier to follow it, and uh, I think the the spread of particularly digital projection um, on all fronts really. Um, I, I, I noticed that in America now they have animations 
that are where people are climbing up the walls of the foyer. And it's, it's so convincing, because it's, again, they're using very bright projectors, you know, tens of, tens of thousands of kilowatts now. And, it, and you can work on it anywhere. I mean, I, I don't any longer make physical models. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't have assistants anymore. I can do what I have. We've all had assistants over the years, but like uh, where there might have been five assistants do it, doing stuff, and it was like a work Making canteen. Making models and, <laughs> so, yeah, and, yeah. and all of that. Yeah, yeah and, um, and it was fun because it was a laugh. But mm. um, in terms of concentration, I think working digitally, uh, you can get into depths of um, visual language that you couldn't possibly do by hand. It does raise the question, which I don't expect you to answer, about where all the people who started as your assistant or, mm. you know, somebody else's assistant are now going to learn their craft, but um, mm. that's a separate issue. But I want to be able to get the audience to ask some questions in a minute, but Ray, can I just ask you about one other aspect of this, which, which we touched on before we started this discussion? Um, the question of costume, and this being such a personal matter for a, for a performer, what he or she is asked to wear, and indeed what he or she is asked to handle in terms of props or uh, um, personal props, anyway. Um, firstly, is it the case, as it sometimes seems to me to be, that increasingly costume design is becoming a separate discipline? I think you do your own costumes, but not always, I, I, I imagine. Um, I know, Bill, you do costume, and, and John does, but mm. other John I don't. doesn't. <laughs> um, and sometimes you don't do costumes because <laughs> there isn't time. But just yeah. on this issue of, firstly, is costume design becoming a separate discipline, or is it just you know, something that people will do when they can? And secondly, this business about the relationship between the designer and the performer in terms of how you get performers to buy into, as it were, the idea that you have about how you want the thing to look. Um, uh, yeah, I'd say that it's, I'd say that there's always been a difference between costume and set design. And I've found that when you're working in Europe and America, those two, those two disciplines are very separate. It's mainly in Britain, strangely enough, where they're too tight to pay two people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking, of course. <laughs> but only a bit. But only a bit. Just that much. Um, but how, however, what that means for us as designers in this country is, is we get a, a total picture of the visual mm. narrative. And uh, also, costume design is a live art, so it's totally plugged into the to the actors, and how they're discovering their character, and how they're feeling about that. There's, you know, there's sometimes when you don't draw any designs because it would be an imposition on their imagination. So you help them articulate the discovery of their character as you go along. And similarly, when you're working, say, in a complicated scenario with an uh, somebody who might be flying, I wonder who that is, and um, also some, also with video, uh, sorry, with projection uh, or animated sequences, then you need to bring that all right back into the rehearsal room and put the whole lot together there and then. So, th so the performer, the actor, is aware of what they're wearing, because they're wearing it, <laughs> and and they're actually aware of how they're relating to the ob the puppeted objects in front of them or the or the props, 
and also what's what the projected dynamic is doing so hopefully that makes it from the very start of rehearsals more seamless in terms of how it's all put together um, if you're lucky you can get that organized and and do that and that's great because it means also that later on when the actors can face it they can even see a film of themselves rehearsing that and therefore see themselves in the picture of what you're creating so they can understand it objectively as well as subjectively this before you so, get onto stage. so different from yeah. the kind of relationship between performer and costume design that certainly that I remember and probably you remember <coughs> but just as a matter of practicality if you're treating the evolution of, of costume design as so organic in that way how do the poor souls in the costume making department relate to what's being evolved in time to make the thing that needs to be made? Are they all basket cases by about week three? Yeah. 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 They are anyway. They are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry guys if you're out there. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, there is a there is a one of the, the most powerful disciplines in, in your uh, art form is time, is it not? Mm -hmm. And deadlines. And the deadlines. lack of it, generally. Both the <laughs> lack of it and, in some cases, the need for it over a very long period before anybody mm. ever gets into a rehearsal room mm -hmm. um, or starts to yeah. think about how they might actually do the thing. So how long, are, how long a lead time, for example, John, did you have on, on From Here to Eternity to start thinking about what you were going to do? Um, I'll use another one, if that's use all right. Use another one. I'll, do, I'll use Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, right, yeah. Which is, was a year. Yeah. And uh, probably 18 months in reality. Before the start bef of rehearsals or no, before, before, it before it hit the so, stage? Yeah, yeah, we had a year of workshops. But yeah. um, and then going back to that thing about costume, actually costume has had to adapt, is going, it's going to have to adapt more. Um, because, I mean, I, have a, I bring a real issue to costume is in that I, we perform a lot of post-production, which gets done... If you think everything sort of has to be ready before you get to the technical rehearsals. So on an interactive show like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you've got to have all of those costumes ready and presented and fitted for all of the characters in the green screen studio, so film studio. Um, well, that can be, you know, second week of rehearsal. So I, mm. I do become public enemy number one on a lot of these shows because, you know, you, it, it's, it's very hard to structure that within a fast-moving um, theatre design process. So actually yeah. you've got a number of, of timelines running in parallel which yes. are actually driven by different sorts of deadline That's right. within one yeah. design team. But in fact that those deadlines, are everything is stretched further forward but, in the yeah. or earlier in the process. Yeah. So mm. it can be quite... It, it, it's having to change, you know, it's really having to adapt yeah. to, for these requirements. So, yeah. um, I'm going to ask the audience in a second, does anybody want to add anything to, to that before we throw it open, just on this issue about time and the, the um, conflicts of interest mm. between, say, performers and design? Well, if you're deadlines. doing all three, video, yeah. set, uh, for, uh, set props and costume, you tend to fall asleep in fitting. So you step back <laughs> to look at it and you slide down the mirror or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's one thing I can think of. And you it's, a, it's, it's long hours. It's and, long you hours. and you yeah. still yeah. Do, do that, do you? Both of you? 
But all of that, all of those things, all of you yeah, do, all of it. I know because you're a specialist, but, <laughs> but it is still possible for one person to take on all of that on, on the show. It's well, harder. Yeah. I should think yeah. it does get harder, but it certainly, um, it certainly reveals that what we have here are people <laughs> of extraordinary multi-talent who have had to adapt um, over a less than a generation uh, to the most um, extraordinarily fast-moving uh, range of changes and opportunities, indeed. And we haven't even touched on the impact, other than by what, what John Dee said, the impact of cinema on the way mm. that audiences see mm -hmm. what is put in front of them. However, mm. I don't think we can get into that right now because I need to give you a chance to ask the question. So can we have some light on the audience, please? And can I just get a bit of a sense of how many of you want to ask questions? I won't necessarily be able to get through everybody. Okay. Yeah. If, if anybody didn't hear that, mm. this is a question about how mm. Bill in particular came mm. to incorporate video yeah. technology into his mm. designs. It was the arrival of, of affordable, handy um, animation. I became an animator because I didn't particularly want to mess with uh, photography. Um, I, I'd not been particularly interested in projection when it was stills. I'd used it, but I felt it's like something happening over there. The moment you move it and you have that thing called parallax, if you look out of a train, the nearer trees are moving at one speed and the different trees going back, that parallax is a, a cue the brain can hardly resist. Yeah, it's like being swallowing the whole concept of the play and believing in the actor's situation. And so that you get then volumetric space and the first time we tried it on the Olivier, it was for um, uh, this, uh, the uh, Coast of Coast Utopia, Utopia trilogy, which had 75 video scenes. There wasn't any photography, it was all uh, animated in my front bedroom, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it was a, a treat um, when uh, David Hersey lit it, and we did a thing where we tied up gobos, which are like moving lights there to match. So we turned the revolve round and turned the, 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 the circular video wall around at the same speed, and, and David animated the shadows of these trees onto the acting area. Trevor Nunn said, he said, I feel like um, we're, we're the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk. <laughs> <laughs> he literally said that. He said, that's awesome, because yeah. you had a kind of a 3D cinema. Um, uh, on a more uh, recent one, would it, um, we, we now can do uh, full 360 circular movies now. And, and in fact, um, and spherical and uh, half spherical, which has been a long-held dream of theatre people, despite uh, long, you know, like 50, 100 years, where you can uh, you can place people in such dynamic uh, uh, spaces, um, and uh, I, I think that will, in some ways, enhance what actors, the live actors, are doing there. Believe it or not, but. It's, it's a great time to be doing it because the, the software, for a thousand pounds, which sounds a lot, but it will last you for years, you can be doing all that. Uh, I do, I, do uh, I am sort of an evangelist for it. I'm sure John is too with what he's doing with projection. Um, and I, I, I hope people adopt it because it's a fascinating medium. It is true, uh, there's a massive amount of, of 3D work being done worldwide by, by people in their 20s. Uh, I'm, I'm very heartened by that. This yeah. is a question about <laughs> money. When does budget start to get discussed? Who would like to tackle that one? 
Go on, yeah. I'm looking at you, Joe. <laughs> Immediately. Yes. Um, yeah, it's the first thing on your mind. I, I mean, I grew up in fringe theatre, so mm. I was built, you know, squatting in the Arcola, the original Arcola, while building the scenery, while making the design, while trying mm. to come up with it, while the rehearsal was going on in another room. And then that was normally my bedroom later on. And, mm. um, you know, and I think that that kind of enables you to think in a very, you think in, within budget all the time. You're thinking, how can I push and, and manipulate this thing? Um, so I think we're really aware of it as designers. Mm. You have to be. But then yeah. there's other moments you go, I wonder what happens if I just push this way? And you, you actually discover that there's probably simpler, cleverer ways of doing yeah. something. And the restrictions are really useful sometimes. Ray? <laughs> uh, yes, I guess I, I similarly grew up in a similar situation as, as John was speaking about. And I agree with what you're saying. I think restrictions are useful. But sometimes I got, I got to a part in my career where I realised I'd actually ghettoise my imagination mm. by sticking to the budget. Mm. Um, <laughs> don't, I don't know one here. <laughs> but, but, but sometimes it's good to imagine something outside what you would normally think was possible. And then go back. And then once you're there, go back into thinking something doing it in another way but in terms of on a, pr on a pragmatic level budget's always there and it's what is the result at the end of the day how much money you've got and what and how you spend it and what money costs in different institutions because it you know uh, it means different things to different places and that's always fascinating well actually John I, can we just expand this a tiny bit because it seems to me that um, all of you at different times must have had to learn what it would cost to do a particular thing that you wanted to do, whether it was making a flat or creating a video or putting bits of cloth together to make a costume or whatever. You said earlier on that you didn't, that you love the technology but you're not that interested in it. I hope I'm not paraphrasing you. Yeah, that's but true. How, yeah. do you, yeah. how do you know when you create a design what it's going to cost to make something that you have imagined and how often is it a shock when you discover that uh, what you thought is not the case sorry. I'm, well i'm afraid to say with what i with what i do i have to be terribly responsible about that cost and i normally in most of the scenarios the producer will come up to me and ask me the first thing is oh it's great we're really glad you're going to come and help us with this. Could you just put together a budget for me? And I'll, that's, you know, I look at it two ways. It's, it's quite a good process for me because there are a lot of... Um, what I do is a little bit like carpentry or building the set because all of these ingredients go into my work. So the filming, the lighting, the filming, the cameras, the animation, it all go, comes together. So I have to kind of have a... Um, I have to be in control of delivering what I say is in my head. So, so I do have to, but I work through that process. It, it's a bit boring, but it's very useful. And the other thing it does, I have to be realistic, you know, I normally have to, in most situations, there is not an, un, you know, there's not an unlimited budget. So I find that being, the ingenuity of sometimes trying to make the big ambition within the budget makes me work better. And, and that's what I, you know, that's, I, I don't think it's a bad thing having to be creative, uh, creative 
in sense you of realize how you can do it. You realise this is being recorded, don't you? And I do. There will be people who will bring this back, back to the <laughs> uh, No, I sincerely mean, I mean, I really do. Yeah. I think of all the best effects we've ever done, and, and I think it's, in all, in all design, if you have to scratch your head about it normally because you couldn't do the ultimate scenario, you know, version, you come up with something better. And, you know, I, it's always, I always think the analogue, the old ones are the best. And they really are, you know, it's, it's thinking about out of the box or just being, just thinking about it slightly differently and you, you normally come up with something. This is a question mm. about how the next generation of designers who are currently assistants are going mm. to learn their craft. John, can I start with you on that one? Yeah, I mean, I was an assistant, so um, I don't think, I mean, I work with my assistants in the same way in a way that I worked with the designers that I worked with as an assistant. So, but I think with the advent of technology, you know, I'm, I do a lot like Bill. We do a lot on Photoshop in the studio and a lot on mm. CAD. And we do... We CAD, computer-aided design, computer for design. those who don't So know. we use a lot of... Um, and on the Olympics, we did lots of 3D scanning, you know, and we scanned Alison Lapper and made a 15-metre kind of inflatable, <laughs> but that in, uh, which went up in eight seconds. So it was like using new technology. But Rebecca, who was my assistant on the show, she, um, she, w it was her job. And that's what she did, and she was able to go off and do that. Um, and we, we set, we divided our tasks quite, quite carefully like that. But she had a lot of responsibility in the studio for coming up with things based on briefs. Um, and I know someone like Es Devlin works in a similar way, you know. And I think, I, I mean, I think it's no different. I think you lay, the skills you're learning are the same probably as before, except we're just expected to know more. <laughs> that, um, so all is not lost. This is, this is a question about the uh, contribution design makes to the evolution of theatre as, 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 as an art form and, a, and as, a, as, as an R. Ah, you're talking about buildings. Ah, buildings. Okay. Right. Specific construct that serves a play, as in Peter Pan. Okay, so mm. theatre mm. design. Are, are you making a contribution? Are you being asked to make a contribution to? We like to think that. Critics might have different ideas, but... <laughs> but actually, as a matter of fact, when theat new theatres are built, mm. has any of you uh, been asked to contribute to the process that results in that building mm. as the, a finished... The Globe. I, I was on the committee that got the Bankside Globe yeah. going and um, became a bit of a whistleblower on it because uh, they have made a mistake on, on the, on the archaeological remains of the Rose Theatre. Mm. of which I, I did the exhibition on site mm. and got to meet all the archaeologists and they've come to the wrong conclusion. But I think it's going to be addressed now. It's the wretched columns. They're in the wrong place. But you were uh, asked. <laughs> you were asked to be part of it. That's the point. Yes, and one yeah. maker said we've we, we, we got a steering committee of, of playwrights, directors and actors and we're getting all these technical drawings from the architect and we can't read them. That's to say what the implication is. Call for is. Bill Dudley. Uh, yeah. It was myself yeah. and Nick Ormroth from um, yeah. Cheek by Jowl. Yeah. We became these two whistleblowers saying, if you do it like that, you can't play the scenes on the stage. And we were proved right because so much of the work is done now out in the yard. Mm. Um, and it was um, my, my wife Lucy's um, production of As You Like was the first to do it. They just did the fight out in the yard in the teeth of opposition. But proved that the yard, if you're going to leave the columns there, uh, you have to play in the yard. Very quickly, each of you, have you, mm. just a matter of fact, have you been involved in, yeah. yes? Yeah, I've been involved in the, I was involved in the Young Vic, in the new build. Yeah. Um, and then obviously mm. involved in the RSC as an associate yeah. there, so like, in terms of the new building. But I think it's interesting, in terms of the Young Vic, I think it was quite successful. 
and in terms of the RSC, it's been it's interesting that the lessons that we've learned are not necessarily learned from the courtyard experience, taking it through to the new RST. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes we get listened to and sometimes we don't. Do you know, I feel that's a really nice moment. <laughs> I think this may be what designers would, yeah. would all agree on. Sometimes we get listened to and sometimes we don't. However, the point about these people is that without them, your experience of going to the theatre would be enormously less uh, invigorating and much impoverished. And it's been a great privilege and a pleasure to talk to all of you. Thank you very much for coming and thank you to all of you for being here.